Thrombophilia is a disorder where the body tends to form blood clots even without injury, and it is associated with an increased risk of thrombotic events. Is thrombophilia acquired or inherited? And what do you know about thrombophilia? Listen to find out more. This is part one in a two-part podcast series on thrombophilia. In this discussion, the experts will explore thrombophilia, including the pathophysiologic mechanisms and the impact it can have on patients' lives. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and supported by an independent educational grant from Pentafarm. I'm honored to introduce to you today's two experts, Professor Cedric Hermans, who is head of the Division of Hematology, the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Unit, as well as the Hemophilia Center of the Saint-Luc University Hospital in Brussels, Belgium, and Professor Sabine Eichinger, who is head of the Coagulation Clinic at the Medical University of Vienna, Austria. And she works on thrombosis and hemostasis research. We are very excited to listen to your discussion. Dear colleagues, dear friends, it's a great uh, honor, privilege to welcome you to this uh, podcast uh, that will focus on a, on a very important topic, in fact, which is thrombophilia. Uh, my name is Cedric Hermans. I'm professor of hematology and heading the division of hematology, as well as the hemostasis and thrombosis unit at the Clinique Universitaire Saint-Luc, which is one of the major faculty hospitals here in Brussels, Belgium. And to discuss this important topic, I have the pleasure to welcome you, Professor Sabine Eichinger. Sabine, maybe you could introduce yourself? Thank you very much, Cedric. It's a real pleasure to be here together with you and to talk about the importance of thrombophilia. Yes, my name is Sabine Eichinger and I am a professor in the field of hematology at the Medical University of Vienna and uh, I am head of the coagulation clinic there. And yeah, so many patients suffer from thrombosis and everybody is, of course, interested in finding out why the thrombosis happened and what can be done to prevent it. So let's see, maybe thrombophilia is the key. Let's see if this holds true, Cedric. Well, yes, I think this is an important question. You know, I, I'm really interested in thrombosis hemostasis. I have to admit that nearly 70% of my patients are referred because of past thrombotic events. And uh, many colleagues ask us, about, you know, finding out the, the reason for this. And clearly, uh, thrombophilia uh, comes on the table and we, are, we get many, many requests to evaluate whether a thrombophilia screen is, is needed. And uh, I'm sure that uh, yourself in your own practice, you are facing uh, the same challenge. And well, Sabine, I think you agree with me, that, but there are many, many guidelines around. Uh, these guidelines are regularly updated. They come from different societies. And although these guidelines well, they provide us with some guidance. My impression is that sometimes they do not help us that much. Would you agree with me? Yes, that's probably uh, the issue with guidelines, particularly when the evidence is not as strong as we wish it, it would be, particularly when it comes to really strong recommendations. So if you do not have enough evidence, then of course you cannot come up with a strong recommendation. And so particularly in the field of thrombophilia, this is what many people are looking for. So to really come up with 
when to test, in which clinical scenario you should test, whom to test. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation. Yeah, and also, you know, let's be honest, you know, thrombophilia encompasses a very broad family, a large yeah. variety <laughs> of uh, blood clotting abnormalities. And for those of you who are a little bit less familiar with this, so maybe... Uh, let's uh, list them. So one of the most common one, uh, certainly in, in this part of the world, in Western Europe, is what we call the activated protein C resistance, which is the factor five Leiden, which is very common. We'll come back to that. And then also another uh, genetic abnormality, uh, quite common too, which is a prothrombin mutation. And we'll come back to these uh, two major thrombophilia later during this discussion. And then we should not forget several key physiological inhibitors of coagulation. Usually I call them the breaks, the physiological breaks of the coagulation. These are antithrombin, protein C, protein S, and some patients need to be tested for them. And also a large family of specific uh, blood clotting abnormalities that are the antiphospholipid antibodies. And we know that among these antiphospholipid antibodies, we have again several potential blood abnormalities, the lupus anticoagulant, and then different antibodies, the anticardiolipine antibodies and the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. So I think these are the main thrombophilia, these are the main thrombophilic abnormalities that we would screen for. I know that there might be others, uh, but I think that the other ones, and Sabine, maybe you would agree with me, the other ones are probably less relevant. Yes, uh, I completely agree. Other ones are less relevant, either because there has not the association with uh, particularly venous thrombosis has never been really established, or there are methodological issues. Maybe I can add a little bit on what you just uh, listed before the different uh, thrombophilic defects. We can uh, divide them into genetic defects, so those who are inherited, and they can also be passed on to the next generation, and those who are acquired, which are the antiphospholipid antibodies, uh, for example, uh, whereas, for example, factor V line, the prothrombin mutation and the uh, natural inhibitor deficiencies are all um, genetic uh, mutations and uh, can be inherited. And uh, of course, there are also differences in the frequency. So we have frequent thrombophilic defects and we have less frequent thrombophilic defects. So for example, as uh, Cedric, you said already, factor five line is fairly frequent, at least in our part of the world. And uh, whereas uh, deficiency of the natural inhibitors, um, for example, antithrombin deficiency, is uh, much, much rarer. And this is important because the rare mutations, they have a little bit more impact on the thrombotic risk than the frequent defects like factor V line or the prothrombin mutation, uh, which have a much lower and less um, dramatic impact on the thrombotic risk. Yeah, and I think you are completely right. And uh, well, we should all be well aware of the implications of these thrombophilic abnormalities. They do increase the risk of thrombosis, and we will discuss this later on. That could be arterial thrombosis, that could be venous thrombosis. And also when thinking about thrombophilia, we need to consider whether we are thinking about the thrombophilic abnormalities that might run in a family. So that would be the genetic ones or other ones that could be acquired and non-existing in the family, like the antiphospholipid antibodies. 
And uh, while clearly all these thrombophilic abnormalities result in some patients in thrombosis, but it's clear that the thrombosis will be totally different and we'll discuss this later on. So maybe what we could do, Sabine, first is uh, to discuss the implications of this uh, thrombophilic abnormalities in patients presenting with venous thrombosis. Yeah, I think this is very important because the relevance of the thrombophilic defects is, of course, in the venous system. So there is uh, almost no impact of the classic thrombophilic defects, uh, particularly not the genetic ones, in arterial thrombotic events. With one exception, antiphospholipid antibodies, they may also increase the risk of arterial thrombosis, but all the others are, if at all, relevant when it comes to venous thrombosis. Well, although, you know, I agree with you, but some of these abnormalities like the antiphospholipid antibodies, they might be associated with both arterial and venous. Oh, so yeah, okay. makes, of course, makes... of course. Uh, they not only are uh, associated with arterial thrombosis, but also with venous thrombosis, which makes them sort of unique because they can do both. Yeah. And it's as you already emphasized, while their frequency is highly variable, we know that well, at least in my in my region, in my area, antithrombin deficiency, and I think this is true across Europe, is quite unusual. By contrast, factor V Leiden is much more frequent. So I think we also need to take this into consideration. And clearly, also when thinking about protein C, protein S deficiency, these are not that frequent thrombophilic abnormalities. Yeah, and also you mentioned something very important before. So this is these are inherited disorders. So you have to really look into the patient family history because there you see if if there is a, a familial tendency uh, towards uh, venous thrombosis, and uh, these are the patients where you really might find. Uh, some of these uh, genetic disorders and where it might be kind of useful to look closer and uh, maybe do some testing for the specific alterations, the, the specific defects. Fully agree. I think the, the, the family tree is key in our practice. And this is true for patients presenting with bleeding problems, but also patients presenting with thrombosis. And especially when considering who could potentially benefit from a thrombophilic screening or try to identify who well, what sort of thrombophilic abnormalities might be running? I have several families with uh, antithrombin deficiency. And when, when you look at their family trees, there are so many members of, their, of these families that had thrombotic events in the past. So clearly the, the penetrance of thrombotic complication is sometimes so high that it makes you suspect that kind of uh, very severe thrombophilic abnormalities. So let's maybe now move to the screening. So I think screening is, is important. We, we need to consider screening, but at the same time, we should not over-screen, we should not under-screen. And uh, well, I think that I've learned a lot about uh, during the, the, the last uh, two decades, because this is not easy to know when you do it, when you don't, don't do it. In my view, there is sometimes a little bit of uh, subjectivity. Some patients might be more better candidates than others, just because and I think this is very important. You need to think about what are the real implications of doing this. So it's easy to, to, to take all the box on the form and request all these tests. But I think what's very important is really to think about, will this really impact on the management of the patient, the way I will treat the patient? And will this also impact on the patient himself as a human being and also on the rest of the family? And I think from that respect, having a very open discussion with the patient 
about you know why we do this and what could be the implication is in my view important would you agree with me yeah definitely i mean human beings are curious by nature and this is a good thing and uh, so this is true for physicians this is also true for the patient uh, we want to know why why is something like it is why did it happen and so if uh, there is the opportunity to find something then of course curiosity is always on the top of what we are doing you have to think it through until the end with keeping the question in mind is there anything which is of benefit for the patient once i have the result will i change the treatment will it change what i'm recommending to the patient if the answer is no, then you should avoid testing because then you avoid either over-treatment or you avoid under-treatment, both of which are harmful or maybe harmful to the patient. In this respect, we have also to keep in mind that a venous thrombosis is not due to one single defect, one single risk factor. You mentioned families with for example, inherited antithrombin deficiency. But even in these families, in the family members who may have a really strong thrombophilic defect in the coagulation system, the thrombosis does not occur solely because of this defect. There are many, many other risk factors which contribute to the thrombotic risk. Increasing age, surgery, immobilization, severe infections, pregnancy, hormone treatment in women, oral hormone contraceptives, and so on and so on. And you always have to keep this also in mind. So there are a lot of things to consider. And thrombophilia, thrombophilia screening is only one minor aspect in this whole scenario. I fully agree with you because, you know, it's a little bit like a puzzle. There are so many pieces. There are so many risk factors for thrombosis so many that we need to consider all of them. And I fully agree that we should not consider that thrombophilia itself is the major or the most important risk factor for thrombosis. It's one of the many, many that are either related to the patient because of their lifestyle, anatomy, whatever, or because of you know surgery they had, aging, pregnancy, whatever. But that means that we need to list and make sure that we go through all these list factors before deciding whether a thrombophilia screen is needed. I think this is, this is very important. In, in most uh, hospitals in 2023, thrombophilia screen is possible, is feasible. The tests have been extensively validated, so the tests are there. It's not that difficult to have access to them. The situation was slightly difficult 10, 15 years ago, because at that time, some of these tests were quite new, but today you can request the prothrombin mutation assay for protein C, protein S, more or less easily. And I think that also makes, you know, the, the beauty of our discipline is to really decide with the patient if they are good candidates for this kind of, uh, of, of testing. I fully agree with you. Yeah, and there is also another, another pitfall or another twist in our thinking. So with the, because these thrombophilic tests are easily available and because of, this, of the progress uh, which had been made over the last two or three decades in discovering new thrombophilic defects. We now have the impression that uh, we know everything. 
So we can, we, we discovered many, many defects. We have the tests readily available. So we think now we know everything, but that's not true. We need to consider that there might be other even genetic defects in our system, not necessarily in the coagulation system, which uh, increases intrinsically the risk for venous thrombosis, for example. I always give the example that we do not know enough about the role of the venous wall when it comes to uh, the risk of venous thrombosis. So the venous wall, the endothelium, is most likely a major source for discovering new risk factors, uh, new uh, conditions, which make patient more susceptible to becoming or to getting a venous thrombotic event. So we have to focus also on the fact that uh, even if we do not find a thrombophilic defect, that there might be something in the patient might be some unknown defect, which we did not yet discover, but which makes the patient at risk for venous thrombosis. So even if we, if the thrombophilia testing comes out negative, this is also not the definite answer that everything is fine and nothing is wrong with this patient. And this is a big pitfall in counseling our patients in adjusting treatment and deciding on the optimal therapy for a patient. Yeah, I think you are completely right. And no thinking about some families where clearly many members presented in the past with uh, different kinds of thrombosis. And, you know, we performed in these patients all the tests we could do, and we couldn't identify something which is currently known. So it's clear that in some of these families, there is something genetically present that has not yet been identified. And we need to to make sure that uh, we keep an eye on this family and maybe they will be quite useful in the future to identify new variants. So th- this is clear. And I, I also appreciate your comment about, yeah, we should think about this clotting factor, these inhibitors, the, the antiphospholipid antibodies, but yeah, the, the vessel walls is important, but also the, the cells that are in, in the blood. We know that the red cells the white cells, we know that some patients present with a thrombosis at unusual location because they have some sort of myeloproliferative disease, hyperactive platelets, red cells, things like that. So restricting everything to this factor five prothrombin mutation, I think this is not certainly not the, the way to go. We need to have a very broad view on this. It's very important. Very, And maybe a last concept that we did not emphasize maybe uh, enough so far is the fact that this most of these thrombophilia, they are predisposing factors. So they are not really the causing factors. So that means that they do exacerbate the, <clears throat> the major thrombotic influence of several acquired or genetic risk factors. So it's very likely that someone who has a thrombophilic abnormality might be at higher risk in some situations. So it's not thrombophilia itself, but it's thrombophilia plus something. So it's some sort of equation. You need thrombophilia. You need to add to thrombophilia something in your life. Uh, That could be a hormonal treatment. That could be pregnancy. That could be surgery, cancer, whatever. And altogether, that will result in the formation of a clot. So clearly, thrombophilia is not the reason itself. It's just making more favorable, I would say. Yeah, this is the reason why we have this common expression that the venous thrombosis is a multifactorial disease. And this is, of course, just an expression, uh, just some form of wording. But 
uh, in fact, it says it all. It's not only one risk factor, not a single condition, but a combination of risk factors, conditions at a certain time point in the life of a patient. So sure. it's risk factors, conditions, time, and all this combines, and sometimes this combines to the disadvantage of the patient, and then thrombosis might happen. But also, one of the real added value of this thrombophilia screen in some patients is the fact that, let's say, you identify in a family that factor V Leiden is present and seems to be highly penetrant, meaning that many members of the family who have this variant do present with thrombosis. I think that family screening for some specific people could be useful. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, young woman uh, who might be pregnant, who might be on the pill. In my view, it's important to screen them before. So family screening in patients who do not have a personal history of thrombosis can be relevant. I think we need to identify the right candidates for this sort of family screening. Would you share the same view in your practice in Vienna? Yes, uh, particularly when it comes to, to antithrombin deficiency, because antithrombin deficiency really conveys a, a strong thrombotic tendency, particularly when it really is a familial condition, yeah, where you have many, many family members with antithrombin deficiency uh, and with venous thrombotic events. And uh, particularly in those uh, who did not yet have a venous thrombotic event, but are carriers of uh, antithrombin deficiency, you really can advise them better in when it comes to the question of thromboprophylaxis in certain risk situations, when it comes to uh, contraceptive, uh, mode of contraceptives, when it comes to pregnancy. And uh, this, of course, is uh, makes a difference for the patients. And also other situations, for example, antiphospholipid antibodies in women when they have miscarriages or when they had uh, thrombosis, particularly at the young age, you might consider uh, screening for or looking for antiphospholipid antibodies because this, again, may have implications and also implications when it comes to uh, choosing the right anticoagulant, because we know that uh, direct oral anticoagulants are uh, not to be considered in patients with antiphospholipid antibodies who had already a thrombotic event. So you need to discuss with the patients to switch them to a vitamin K antagonist. And uh, this, of course, also has implications for the patients. Yeah, I fully agree, especially for antithrombin deficiency, as well as severe thrombophilic abnormalities. Okay, so time is running. I think that we still have you know, a few minutes left. So maybe uh, I would like to emphasize a few uh, additional aspects. The, the first one is certainly to make sure that but that will be covered in another postcard that we perform this thrombophilia screen at the right time, make sure that there is no analytical interference or interference with anticoagulants. Also, let's make sure that patients had no already this kind of test in the past because avoiding uh, duplication is important. Some of these tests are quite costly. I, I think it's also important to provide the patients with a, a good summary explaining exactly what they have and good information. I think now there are plenty of uh, good information around so that the patients do not need to go on Google and try to find out some information. We try in my in my center, we we really provide them with with information sheet that are really detailed about you know what are the implications because what we do not want to do is um, 
give these patients the impression that they have a new illness. Having thrombophilia does not mean that you have a illness. You just have some sort of genetic variant that could predispose you to some kind of thrombosis. I think these are important aspects. And I, I hope that our colleagues listening to us agree with this. But do you on your side? I can only emphasize this. I mean, if you are a carrier, a heterozygous carrier of factor five line, for example, you do not have a defect. You are not a patient per se, uh, just because you are an otherwise asymptomatic uh, human being with uh, a heterozygous factor five line mutation. And uh, this... Uh, needs to be seen with, with very much caution that you do not make a patient out of an otherwise healthy uh, individual just because you are running thrombophilia tests and then you get a lot of results with scary comments. Thank you. Well, I think we will soon conclude. So I I hope that you uh, enjoyed this uh, podcast on thrombophilia, very open discussions I think reflecting nicely our practice, trying to, you know, integrate the different guidelines and uh, making the, the best value of this thrombophilia screen. I think they are important. I think a thrombophilia screen was, was not possible 50 years ago. No, it's possible. Uh, it's really helping the patient. And uh, I think we need to value them as much as we can. And maybe, Sabine, you could conclude yourself with some uh, final words for our colleagues. Sure, Cedric. It was a, a real big pleasure and I enjoyed it very much uh, talking to you about this very important topic. And let me emphasize once more, uh, always think it through, ask if the result has any clinical benefit for the patient or the relatives. In the end, avoid over-treatment and under-treatment just based on the result of the thrombophilia testing. Thank you. Thank you, Sabine. Thank and you. thanks to I... the listeners, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me too. Bye-bye, see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for this interesting discussion. We've learned a lot about the causes of thrombophilia, how to identify patients at high risk, and the implications of the disease on the lives of patients. If you enjoyed this and want to find out more on thrombophilia, then please look for the other episodes on the Hematology Medical Conversation podcast under the account of Core2Add Medical Education. Also, don't forget to rate this episode or inform your colleagues about it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Add and developed by Hemostasis Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of hemostasis. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Cortuet website.